Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. And on tonight's program, Paul Rickard catches up with ST Wong from Prime Value. Now, he looks at the three stocks he's very interested in at the, at the moment, and we all are looking for stocks that might be good value considering the sell-off. He's looking at James Hardy, IPH Limited, and Santos. And then Paul himself has a good look at infrastructure. Infrastructure has always been a pretty safe play. Um, and there's a lot less around nowadays because of mergers, takeovers, and, and buyouts, whatever. But the, it tends to be a, a very reliable kind of stock to get involved in. So Paul talks about infrastructure and how you can invest in it. And then Arjun Palawal from a, a group called Investor Kit talks about interest rates going up, uh, how the property market will react to it. All the sort of stuff that most of us are interested about. I guess most of us who are actually holding property are hoping that the calls of 30% falls in house prices will be wrong. Anyway, that's the show. Let's kick off now with ST Wong from Prime Value. Joining me now is ST Wong. He is the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Prime Value Asset Management. He's going to share his insights on the market and three very interesting stocks. ST, thank you for joining us on Switzer. Good afternoon, Paul. Let's start with the market because the, the US market's officially in bear market territory. The Australian market has so far has not succumbed. We've been holding off, uh, showing a few more signs of, uh, I guess, a little more positive than the US market. Um, what's your sense on, on where we're heading and, and the sort of big, big debate around inflation and bond yields? I mean, uh, what's, your, what's your take on the overall market at the moment? I think, Paul, to kick it off is that, you know, Australia or ASX has held up much better than its peers offshore, especially this year when you look at how the ASX 300 has performed. And it really boils down to some of the advantages Australia has, which is, you know, in commodities, you know, we've been uh, a net producer of uh, oil, oil and gas, mm -hmm. uh, we're pumping out iron ore. So that commodity theme has held Australia well. Uh, in current uh, market environment, which has obviously been volatile. I think the market will continue to deal with uh, difficulties in the very short term. Uh, what we've seen in the last three to six months is the fact that uh, the market has been derated because interest rate has been going up. But I think we're going to the phase whereby the economy is definitely slowing. And certainly the E in a PE ratio uh, is under considerable pressure into the next three to six months. And that's where the market would focus on in the next three months, especially coming of reporting season. And I suspect um, it will be quite a choppy market in the near term. Let's talk about just, I want to get some stocks, but maybe just pick up on something you say in terms of the importance of resources to our market. Uh, and we've seen generally pretty strong uh, commodity prices, but some softening in the last week or two, I guess, as there's more talk about uh, recession, at least if the, the fear, at least the markets have, if the central banks get play it too hard, the economies will move into recession. What's your sort of macro view on, on the outlook for resources at the moment? Um, Paul, it's a hard one. Um, I don't actually predict where resources, commodities are going, but certainly from a bottom-up perspective, there'll be sectors of the commodity complex, which certainly looks quite interesting to us. I mean, oil and gas, as you know, has been quite a hot sector for a number of months now. I think that still looks pretty prospective or the medium to longer term. And the basis for calling that up is the fact that 
the sector remains underinvested mm -hmm. from a capital position. And that means that, you know, from a supply context, that remains constrained, irregardless where Russia-Ukraine war uh, takes place um, in the next six to six or nine months. So from a bottom-up perspective, um, you know, from macro perspective, especially the oil and gas complex looks uh, quite interesting from where I sit, and that continues to be quite attractive as an investment proposition into the medium term. Well, let's talk about one of the oil and gas stocks you like, and that's Santos. Um, it's done okay, but it hasn't perhaps done as well as Woodside. Um, what, what, what's the value in Santos, do you think? I think the distinction between Santos and Woodside is uh, predominantly calling a Woodside has a larger gas exposure, and that's really building on what's happening in Europe, shortage of gas and gas mm -hmm. prices just going up quite significantly. I think for me, in the medium term, Santos looks quite interesting. As you mentioned, it hasn't rallied as much as Woodside, but a number of bottom-up uh, factors, which is uh, you know quite positive from where we sit, uh, where Santos, Santos share price is concerned. You know, Santos had a merger with All Search mm -hmm. uh, just last year, and we think the synergies between the two companies are going to be quite substantial. We haven't actually seen those synergies come through. And we'll start to see that come through in the next you know, 12, 18, 24 months. The other factor that I really like with Santos is that, is that it is a seller of assets into the market. And as we know, oil and gas market is quite strong. And we do like uh, companies which are selling into a position of strength. So with that sell down of assets uh, where we the all such mergers concerned, we think it will give also, uh, Santos a strong uh, kick up where the balance is concerned and shareholders should be expecting high dividend payouts in the next 24 months. Yeah. So these are some of the bottom-up factors which is in support of uh, Santos' uh, thesis into the next uh, two years, Paul. They've done a lot of work to sort of improve their balance sheet, haven't they? Reduce gearing, get rid of some assets. Uh, so you still see a lot of opportunity with Santos going forward. Is that, uh, is that sort of how you're viewing that particular stock? Yes, Paul, that's right. You know, if, if we dial back, you know, say five years back, you know, Santos was in a pretty poor position. Balance sheet was under pressure. That's not pretty much turned around. Um, so the strength of combining all search and Santos gives it growth options, uh, balance sheet options. And I think as shareholders, uh, we will be beneficiary of a much stronger position, a much stronger company in the next couple of years. And that's really underpinning the thesis for like in Santos. Let's go to one of the industrial companies. I guess it's almost like a US industrial company in James Hardy. It was a market darling for a lot of part of 2021. It's had a big pullback from a high of almost about $58 to just under $30. I mean, again, another stock that you're keen on. Do you want to just go through the thesis on James Hardy? Sure, Paul. Look, you know, James Hardy's share price has retraced about 40% since the start of this year, mm. um, and it's tracked pretty much the U.S. housing index uh, quite closely, as its peers in the U.S. has done as well. Uh, look, you know, James Hardy, I think, is a quality company, and if you're looking for companies which have a quality appeal to it, I think James Hardy fits that bucket. It is uh, falling 40%, as we discussed earlier. It's trading about 12 times mm -hmm. uh, FY23 earnings, uh, dividend yield about 4 4.5%. So from a valuation perspective, it really makes sense uh, from where we sit. Um, the, the, the key for a company like James Hardy is that 
it is completely in flux and in change. Uh, three years ago, 60% of its earnings were driven by, you know, new housing starts. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, today, 60% um, of its earnings is driven by what's called repair and renovation in, in the US market. And I think that's gonna be a more resilient type of earnings uh, profile for a company like James Hardy. So what we're saying here is that James Hardy's valuations have derated significantly, but I think it's a much better quality company today than where it was three to five years ago. Uh, now, we're not gonna discount the fact that the, the, the share price could still be volatile in the near term, say the next six months. But if we take a longer term view, I think we're buying a company which is trading the track valuations, but actually is a more attractive or better value company uh, than where it was three to five years ago. And that's appeal for industrial company like James Hardy because I think the quality is, you know, it's, it's, not, in dis, is, is, is not in question. Uh, the quality of the company is really shown through the margins of the business, which has been increasing in the last couple of years. And this is the sort of company that we're looking for in the current downturn. Yeah, at a multiple around about 12 and a dividend yield of about 4.5% for a quality company, it's starting to look reasonably attractive uh, on that basis, isn't it? Yeah, I think in a broad sense, you know, we can't predict where James Hardy could trade next you know, three to six months, but certainly I'm relatively comfortable that we're paying a decent price for the medium to long term. For what I view as a quality business. Yeah, let's go to another totally different company. That's IPH, which a lot of viewers may not be familiar with. That's sort of in the intellectual property game. First, we'll just explain what IPH does. And secondly, why is it sort of on your, your radar at the moment? So IPH is a small medium cap company. Um, it is trademark and patent legal firm mm -hmm. across, uh, you know, across, uh, across Australia, but also into Asia, especially uh, the markets, Singapore and China. So in a trademarks business and patent business, um, you know, companies such as Samsung or Apple might be filing uh, patents into uh, in Australia or China or uh, Singapore, for example, for intellectual property purposes. And what we found in a company like IPH is that it is a business which has resilient earnings. Um, during downturns or difficult times, companies still file a lot of patents yeah. and trademarks because it is, you know, the future of the businesses. So we found that you know IPH is a quite a resilient business, and the revenues are actually quite consistent through market economic cycles. Mm. So that's a key aspect that we like where IPH is concerned. It's trading about seventeen times, you know, dividend yield about four percent. So again, this is a high quality business which we think will do quite well, regardless of the economic cycle, uh, from from our perspective. So when we're trying to build out a portfolio, uh, we like businesses which are resilient. We like businesses also, as we discussed, James Hardy, which has been sold off, and Santos, which has its own uh, key drivers. But um, a company like IPH, uh, in, in our opinion, has got defensive characteristics, resilient earnings, and we, when we build our portfolio, it sits within the bucket whereby you know we, we buy it, we, we don't have to work too much mm -hmm. on it. And we think there will be consistent delivery earnings in, in the medium to long term in and out of economic cycle. So this is one of the key characteristics we like about IPH Limited. Yeah, three very different companies in IPH, Santos, uh, and, and um, James Hardy. Uh, S.T. Wong, thanks for joining us on Switzer. That was S.T. Wong, the Chief Investment Officer 
and Portfolio Manager from Prime Value Asset Management. Hello, I'm Paul Rickard. Today I want to talk about infrastructure, one of the almost disappearing asset classes on the ASX, or so it looks, and show you how you can still invest in infrastructure companies and infrastructure funds. Let's just look at what's going on with the uh, infrastructure companies. We've seen a lot of our major companies, companies under the offer of, of a takeover offer. So Sydney Airport, that went via a takeover offer. Spark Infrastructure, which held uh, major transmission assets, um, that was taken over by uh, KKR and Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. And finally, we've got Atlas Arteria, which is the old Macquarie Fund that uh, has toll road assets in Europe and the United States. Uh, IFM Global Infrastructures purchased 15% and potentially considering a bid. So we've seen three of the major infrastructure companies actually disappear from the ASX. There are still some other listed infrastructure companies. Of course, the biggest one is uh, Transurban, which is the toll road operator. That's actually one of the biggest infrastructure companies globally. Um, but some other companies are APA, which of course owns a whole lot of gas pipelines. Auckland International Airport, under the ASCS code AIA. Uh, Duxton Water, which invests in, in water leases and on sells those uh, effective water rights to farmers. Infratril, which is a sort of a mixture of inf infrastructure and also healthcare, plus there are some power generation companies. So there are some ways to invest directly in infrastructure companies, but uh, the opportunities are certainly a lot less than they were go back uh, 12 to 18 months. And I guess that tells you something about infrastructure. It's in sort of hot demand and is actually one of the best performing asset classes uh, globally. This looks at um, the performance of global infrastructure in terms of in A dollar terms over the last five years and compares it to the S&P ASX 200. Over the last year to the 31st of May, uh, infrastructure has done really well, up 17% compared to the uh, S&P ASX 200 accumulation index return of 4.8%. If you move that into June, where of course the ASX and most equity markets have had a pretty horrific month, uh, global infrastructure still is very much in the green. So, uh, and that's actually for an asset class that's potentially less volatile uh, than equity. So infrastructure's done well. Three years, not quite so well, but on a five-year basis, it's pretty close to the equity return. And as I said, that's with less risk or less volatility than you get in the share market. And I guess that's one of the reasons that tells you why the big super funds in particular uh, are looking at some of our infrastructure assets. They're looking for very long-term returns, potentially quite secure returns, and potentially offering a lot less volatility than you may get in the ASX. Now, there are, fortunately, a number of ways you can invest in global listed infrastructure. And this is where you get a exposure to all the infrastructure type uh, sectors, so not just uh, uh, power utilities or toll roads or airports or rail, but you can access to all the sectors that make up infrastructure, plus you get access to a whole lot of companies and from multiple geographies. Let's look at the two actively managed, actively managed uh, ASX listed funds. Magellan Infrastructure Fund, which trades under the code of MICH, and Argo Global Listed Infrastructure, which trades under the ticker of ALI. Magellan, of course, uh, is run by the Magellan Group. It's a $910 million fund. 
It invests in global listed infrastructure companies from around the world, multi-sector, so includes toll roads, airports, integrated power, energy infrastructure, water utilities and rail. Uh, it's a currency hedge fund, so it takes out the potential opportunity for gain from a movement down in the $8, but also takes away the risk if the currency goes against you. And they charge a management fee of 1.05% um, plus a performance fee. So that trades under the code of MICH. Another company is from the Argo suite, and that's the Argo Global Listed Infrastructure. Argo better known for running one of the largest listed investment companies. This is also a listed investment company, uh, and it comes under the Argo umbrella, but at the actual investment managers, management is done by Cohen and Steers, a big US uh, infrastructure player. It's about a $400 million fund. Uh, like Magellan invests in global listed infrastructure, it's not currency hedged, has a higher management fee of 1.2%, but no performance fee. And then there are two exchange traded funds, uh, the Vanguard Global Listed Infrastructure, which is trades under the, the ASX code of VBLD. It tracks a slightly different index, the FTSE Developed Core Infrastructure Index, lots of holdings. It's not currency hedged, and as you can see, uh, a, a lower management fee than the actively managed funds of 0.47%. And there's also an, a fund from VanEck, which is the FTSE Global Infrastructure Fund under the ASX code of INFRA or IN. Uh, IFRA. It is currency hedged and a slightly higher management fee of 0.52%. So you can look at both active funds and passive funds uh, in investing in global infrastructure assets from across the world. So lots of ways you can still invest in infrastructure. There are some companies like Transurban that are still trading on the ASX, but what you might like to consider is one of the either the actively managed or potentially um, index managed funds uh, that give you access to not just one sector, but companies from uh, multiple sectors, from multiple geographies, and a lot broader range of assets. And as I said, infrastructure's been a pretty good performing asset with lower risk than necessary investment in outright equities. Thanks for joining me on Switzer TV. I'm Paul Ricard. Interest rates might be going up, but the property market still has opportunities for investors. That's according to Arjan Palawar, the head of research and the founder of InvestorKit Buying Agency. Arjan joins me now. Thank you for having me on. Look, a lot of our uh, viewers probably aren't familiar with what a buyer's agent does. Tell me, how do you help uh, investors? What, what are the services that uh, you provide? Well, a buyer's agent represents the buyer and buyers have long been underrepresented in Australia when it comes to real estate. Uh, sellers typically engage sales agent to sell their property, negotiate with buyers, while buyers have typically been at it alone. So we help buyers when it comes to negotiation, due diligence, market research, and strategy. At the end of it all, saving them time, avoiding countless mistakes, and also making sure they can feel good about the decision they've made. And no doubt helping them to save money along the way, getting the right property. I guess that's, that's all part of it, isn't it? And, that, and that's where the research comes in, I guess, is about being able to know which area to look at, where to, where to, what, 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 which part of the market, is that sort of, that's what your research is, is designed to assist with? 
Yeah, so market research when it comes to our particular business is the core differentiator for us. We are very data-driven as a buyer's agency, which helps us you know, reduce opportunity costs for investors. Whilst Australia across the country has no doubt had a great run in property, uh, every single year it's not the same for all our markets. So it's about making sure we're able to buy beyond the backyard and help investors use data to access various markets. Okay, let, let's talk about a couple of macro things that are, might might have a big influence on the property market. We've seen the Reserve Bank now increase interest rates by 0.75%. It's almost certain they'll do another half percent in July and probably the same sort of rate again in, in August. So by the end of the year, a lot of economists are saying that rates will be between one5 and 2% higher than they are today. Is that something should, that should make uh, you know, property investors a little bit wary about um, entering the property market at the moment? At first level, I'd say it depends on where your eggs are, uh, because one thing we are looking at across this, the country is, yes, interest rates will no doubt have an impact to demand because they're tied so closely with mortgages and how much mortgages mm -hmm. people can get out when interest rates are increasing. Uh, but the core thing here is our analysis across Australia really focuses on supply side as well. Markets like Sydney and Melbourne aren't heavily undersupplied with their listings levels in line with some of their five-year averages, which means that interest rate impacts are more sensitive in these areas, likely to cause vendors and buyers to have a disconnect in their relationship. However, if you look at cities on the capital front, like Adelaide and Hobart, mm -hmm. their listings are substantially below pre-COVID averages which means that even with changes in demands, they're probably likely to still generate some price growth for the rest of 2022, which will surprise many seeing markets in other directions not doing the same. If you take a look at many of our regional cities, we do see many undersupplied cities, Toowoomba, Bundaberg, Warrnambool, Shepparton, the list goes on. We have far more undersupplied markets in Australia than we do oversupplied. So whilst interest rates are no doubt a burden to many households, we will see many household markets still continue to perform well, albeit some of our major cities not so much. And what about in terms of how sellers behave when they're under pressure with higher interest rates? I mean, are they just more likely to be perhaps a bit more negotiable about price? Is that what you find that, uh, you know, this is a good time for buyers to, uh, you know, to sort of hold their line, hold their price bid, you know, to not, not meet necessarily the... Uh, the, the, the seller's preferred, uh, you know, preferred price? How do, you, how do you approach that sort of market in this sort of environment? Yeah, we typically see pricing stem from two changes in data points. The first being days on market, the second being vendor discounting, which then incurs pricing changes. Even before that, those comes listing levels in line with demand. And Sydney's a great example. We've seen uh, the detached and the attached markets in parts of uh, all over Sydney, really, where days on market is increasing. So it is taking vendors longer to sell. When this activity occurs, we do start to see people like buyers and sellers come together and go, hold on a minute, we're not ready to pull the trigger just yet. We want that price to come down a little bit more. And this is where sellers need to be a little bit more open to that back and forth conversation with their sales agent if they are in markets like parts of Sydney. However, when you look across the country, uh, we're seeing those conditions very substantially in those cities that I'd mentioned on the opposite side, they're receiving, if, if not five, 10, even in some cases, 20 plus offers in the first open home. Mm. So Australia right now has shifted from that blanket approach of capital growth occurring everywhere to now sellers seeing varying conditions across the country. The other thing for investors, of course, is when interest rates go up, their, uh, their cost of loans go up. And of course, that means that the, uh, 
the carry on the property is not perhaps what it used to be. H how do you uh, talk to investors about that? I mean, should they be expecting that, uh, you know, they'll see better rental incomes or just potentially just see sort of their, you know, now they're having to meet higher interest costs, just that reflected potentially just in, you know, in cheaper prices, cheaper entry points? That's a great question. We're seeing three core parts emerge here. The first part is in our business, um, which is definitely seeing a change in the buyer preference. Mm -hmm. We would typically see purchase prices quite broad between buyers, but we have seen buyers, investors specifically say, look, I'd like to tone down the amount of property I'd like to purchase when it comes to dollar value. So purchase prices shrinking does bring that rental yield relationship closer. That's the first move we're seeing. The second thing is the rental markets are exploding across Australia and aren't slowing down anytime soon. So when you think of the investor, they have both taxation outcomes as well as rental income to offset some of these rising costs. So that is more than being offset in many areas, which are seeing rents rise by between 2,600 and 5,200 in the last 12 months. Uh, we actually just recently released a, a 20 regions report that we feel rents will do the same in the next 12 months. So that's an example of the next piece offsetting costs. The final point, the third and final, is the fact that we also see that relationship between wages in many areas. Mm -hmm. Just recently, uh, the increase in major wages from the minimum wage standpoint, but also where we are seeing economy strengthened through a booming infrastructure pipeline across Australia, it will lead to some rising wages as a flow and effect in various cities, which will be another offset of costs there. So there's three things offsetting it for investors, but we have noticed a pullback in purchase prices as a core decision being made by buyers to protect themselves. And as coming out of COVID, we saw a couple of big trends in the market in the sense that uh, there was increased demand for houses and less demand for units. Potentially there was this move out of the, I won't know whether tree changes or sea changes or whatever they were, but people fleeing the, some of the major capital cities uh, you know, for some of the regional areas. And then of course, we've seen better growth in, in, the, in the smaller capital cities. How do you see each of those trends playing out over the next couple of years? I feel people feel that this trend is suddenly over just because we're not hearing as, as much about COVID as we were. Um, I don't feel this, this trend is over. The sea change and tree change is here to stay. Mm -hmm. um, there are many businesses that are on the fence about making these changes that yes, some are pulling back on, but I feel many will be met with resistance and more and more that weren't comfortable with making these changes may start to open up as, as they modernize the way that their business can be operated. In my opinion, this trend of people looking for lifestyle as a core part of their decision-making, not just employment, and then suddenly looking to feel they have to throw their whole lives around it, is here to stay in Australia. As for the point of detached houses and the attached houses, they created a price gap that's some of the largest in the history where our price gap between the detached and attached dwellings currently are. People are also looking at this as a way to say, is there now perhaps a bit of value in the attached market? But I feel that once you get stung once, don't expect to be uh, never stung again. The attached markets do carry supply risk for property investors. And that means jumping up and down vacancy rates and jumping up and down prices where houses have not been as impacted. So I don't see a huge opportunity to play this catch up game for attached dwellings to come back up. Uh, I do feel that there's a permanent shift where uh, more and more people will be seeking lifestyle and perhaps not so much living in the attached dwellings. And in terms of the smaller capital cities, you're a bit more bullish on, on, on those cities as opposed to Sydney and Melbourne where you think uh, the supply demand balance is, is getting fairly close? 
Yeah, three parts on that. Number one is the demand and supply, like you've pointed out. Uh, Adelaide is a great example of a city where their listing levels are, are substantially lower. In many sub-regions of Adelaide, 30 to 50% lower pre-COVID levels when it comes to total property listings for sale. That's a big part of why Adelaide has continued to perform in 2022 and going into 23. However, the second part of this equation is definitely around past performance. The last 10 years in Sydney have seen many regions and sub-regions perform anywhere from 10 to 14% per annum averages. This is not sustainable when you look at 20 and 30 year terms of five to 7% mm -hmm. in parts of Sydney, which means that these smaller cities that haven't quite seen that are now starting to see that continue a little bit longer only because they haven't seen the huge gains. The third and final part is our local economies. Uh, infrastructure pipelines in some of our smaller cities have never been busier. As a result, this is also causing more impact when you look at dollars spent per capita, whereas some of our biggest cities are used to a lot of infrastructure anyway. Arjun, I think you said that you're very much a data-driven organisation. That's the way that you approach the market. So putting you on the spot, which is sort of your top five areas for, for property investors to look at? I'll give you a mix of capital and, city re mm -hmm. uh, capital and regional cities. In our capital markets, we do feel Adelaide represents the best value uh, combined with our regional cities, we look at a few satellite locations. If I'm going across the country doing a bit of a tour in Queensland, we feel Toowoomba, Townsville and Bundaberg represent varying types of market conditions that show strength. If we move over to New South Wales, Tamworth, Wagga Wagga, Albury and these three markets coming together, you could also attach Armadale to Tamworth. Um, if we move down the coast of New South Wales, Port Macquarie continues to maintain strong conditions. And if we jump into Victoria, the beautiful seaside of Warrnambool, cities like Bendigo, Shepparton and Wodonga. Um, there's varying opportunities across Australia. If we dip into South Australia once more, Barossa Valley does not seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But I guess here is we're spoiled by choice when we do consider beyond our backyard. Okay, well, that's, that's a lot to look at, and uh, you've given us a pretty big range. I didn't hear anything from WA there, but uh, I think we covered pretty well every state. So, uh, but look... Um, we, we've got a big country ahead of us. <laughs> we have a big country, and you're seeing lots of opportunities. So uh, thank you very much for joining us on Switzer. Thank you, my friend. That was Arjun Palawar, the head of research and founder of Investikit Buyers Agency. And that's the show for the night. Thanks for joining us. And remember, if you want to know more about the Switzer Report, go to switzerreport.com.au and I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for joining us.